Welcome to Footnote. I'm Emily Gaddick. Let's get started. There are some sounds that can take you not just to places, but to times. Like this one, for example. If that doesn't scream 90s, I don't know what does. For me, this has always been the sound of the 1920s. It's like hearing the whole Western world breathing a giant, decade-long sigh of relief. The Great War, the war to end all wars, with all its horrors, was finally over. No more senseless carnage, no more horrific innovations like mustard gas and aerial bombardment. But there was a dark side to the 1920s, too. As much as everyone wanted to pretend that the war was over and done with, its effects still lingered. The war had ripped something away that couldn't be put back. Violence had been industrialized on a nightmarish scale. Nations had seen what their allies and enemies were capable of, and it was deeply unsettling. As soon as they could, many of the countries that had put down their bayonets started preparing secretly for war. In 1921, a group of five young Canadian military officers, all distinguished veterans of the Great War, drove across the border into the U.S. in a rented McLaughlin 6 touring car. They were led by Colonel James Sutherland Brown. Like casual day trippers, they wore civilian clothes and stopped in small towns and asked the locals for points of interest. I got a stationer in Burlington to take an interest in the questions of getting out a map of Vermont to show the physical features. I put it up to him from the standpoint of tourists and engineers. He, of course, had no idea who I was except that I was a Canadian. But these men weren't on vacation. They were the first wave of an ambitious plan called Canadian Defense Scheme Number 1, a very secret plan to invade the United States. From today's vantage point, the scheme seems a little nuts. Part of the reason why is, of course, the strength of the U.S. military, currently unrivaled in the world. Part of this is Canada's pacifist reputation, deserved or no. But military mismatch aside, the two countries also have a long history of cooperation. They haven't fought a war against each other in over 200 years. Their soldiers fought side by side in World War I, and would later fight together in World War II. They share the longest continuous border in the world, almost entirely uncontested and undefended by either country's military. And diplomatic relations between the two countries have historically been excellent. But Brown and the other officers had seen the impressive mobilization of American forces at the end of the Great War. After years of neutrality, the U.S. enacted a draft to send soldiers to fight in France. In a single year, the United States government had drafted 2.8 million soldiers, 
roughly a third of the entire population of Canada at the time. The influx of American soldiers to France was widely credited with finally bringing the war to an end. If you were America's nearest neighbor, it was a bit disquieting to witness. So when Brown pitched his idea, eventually known as Canadian Defense Scheme No. 1, to his superiors, it didn't seem so unreasonable. The plan was simple. The best defense is a good offense. If Canada ever saw the U.S. mobilizing to invade, Canadians would attack first. Troops would come by air along the Pacific to attack Seattle, Spokane, and Portland. At the same time, soldiers would come across the border to take Albany in New York, Fargo, North Dakota, and Great Falls, Montana, before moving on to Minneapolis and Maine, respectively. Then, Canadian troops would wait for British reinforcements to arrive. Their combined forces would stave off the Americans for good. With the plan decided, Brown and his men quietly gathered intelligence to lay the groundwork for the invasion, taking trips across the border to New York and Vermont to scout infrastructure and access points. The military importance of Vermont consists of it being a buffer for protection of part of the Canadian frontier. There are really only four good routes running north and south through the state to the Canadian frontier. The two better ones run respectively to the shore of Lake Champlain and up the valley of the Connecticut River. From these north and south routes, there are five entrances to Canada. Perhaps more crucially, they tried to get the measure of the locals along the border to see how they would react if and when Canadian troops invaded. Brown was not overly impressed by what he saw. We stopped here near North Duxbury. A man employed on the state roads and repair patrol came up. He was characteristic of a large number of men in the state, fat and lazy, but pleasant and congenial. The men appeared to be of two types, all apparently averaging about five feet nine inches to five feet ten inches. The first type is a rather lean, severe-looking man, and the second type is a fleshy, round-faced, rather congenial individual. They're not actually lazy. They have a very deliberate way of working and apparently believe in frequent rests and gossip. The women throughout the rural districts appear to be a heavy and not very comely lot. However, he was heartened to see a healthy regard for Canada among the Americans he talked to in Vermont, who, it seemed, frequently crossed the border even for the most minor amusements, like grabbing a glass of beer. Of course, this was during Prohibition, when it was much easier to grab a glass of beer, or a barrel of whiskey, in Ontario than it was in Vermont. But Brown took the enthusiasm of the Green Mountain Boys at face value. In the end, he was sure that the invasion would be a success, and that Americans along the border would flock to the Canadian cause. There is a large and influential number of American citizens who are not altogether pleased with democracy as it exists in the United States of America and have a sneaking regard for Great Britain, British law and constitution, and general civilization, and are proud and boastful of the British descent. Whatever remarks I may have made about the people of Vermont, there is no doubt that they would make good soldiers if aroused, but I think that they would have to have a good cause to be enthusiastic. Oh, Canada, 
Canada's military high command scrapped the scheme, citing the excellent relations between the two countries. All official documents relating to Canadian Defence Scheme No. 1 were destroyed. Only informal notes, like the one from Brown's jaunt into Vermont, survived. But it turns out Brown wasn't so paranoid after all. As Defence Scheme No. 1 was being quietly buried, the U.S. Army and Navy were drawing up War Plan Red, a secret hypothetical plan for war against the British Empire. In broad strokes, the plan was to cut Britain off from its various colonies, cripple its navy, and starve the mother country into submission. The plan relied heavily on a no-holds-barred invasion and occupation of Canada, including airstrikes and gas attacks. It was officially approved by the secretaries of the Army and the Navy in 1930. When Britain declared war on Nazi Germany in 1939, War Plan Red was put on hold. And when the U.S. entered World War II as a British ally, the point seemed moot. The plan was finally declassified in 1974. Neither country admits to having any current plans, hypothetical or otherwise, to invade the other. If you liked what you heard today, you can find more episodes of Footnote on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Until next time.